Welcome to the podcast series, Small Business Survival Conversations. Through our weekly conversations, we hope to provide you with strategies and insights, knowledge and expertise to enlighten you as you work to build and grow your business. Here are your hosts, Anna Steinfest and Dr. Michael Troyer. Welcome, everyone, to Small Business Survival Conversations. We're pleased you've joined us today. I'm here with my colleague, Anna Steinfest. Hello, everyone. And we have a special guest this morning to talk to, uh, one with a uh, gentleman with lots of background and experience in, in business, including small business. His name is Phil Hauk, and he has been an entrepreneur in the past. He's been a successful journalist. He's been the chair of something we call Tech, the Executive Committee. And he ran three or four of those, I believe, Phil, over time, uh, where businesses came in and, and worked together as colleagues to help each other improve their businesses under the, the guidance and facilitation of, of Phil. And he's now the chair of the Envision Board, which is an entity that, that has ties to the community, the Chamber of Commerce, et cetera, but really is a self-standing organization that's challenging us to dig in much more deeply and trying to understand where the future is what it might look like and how we prepare ourselves for that as a as a community business educationally. I, I'll let you fill in more of that, Phil. But this is Phil Hauk, uh, both a dear friend and someone who's done a great deal in the life. Phil, I'm going to start you out by just saying, tell us how, how you come to be at this point. Uh, that you, You've got this history. I've only touched on a little bit of it. What would you like the listeners to know? And what are some well, guess, of the pivotal guess, moments? You know, the, to, to, to the degree I'm going to be sharing some information or some insights, it, it, it yeah, it, like everybody else, it evolves over a long period of time. I've always had an interest in journalism, uh, ability to write. Uh, I was editor of my, my college newspaper. I worked for the Wall Street Journal. I got an, an MBA that looked at organizational development, that sort of thing. And then you want to stop writing about it and actually be involved in business. And so I got involved effectively in retailing. And I was in that for 10 to 15 years. And that's what ultimately brought me from St. Louis up to Green Bay with the Prangy Company. And through that, so you, you evolve from writing about something to watching organizations and how they're become effective and ineffective. And, and I ended up being in consulting a little bit for several years and then got a bright idea for creating a newsletter because I was watching the the you're in part of large organizations, but watching small organizations, and you start to understand that small organizations need the same information the larger organizations need. They need the same insights about what to do. Uh, the zeros in the in the revenue stream are, are different, but they need it. So we created a newsletter called Wisconsin Small Business uh, Counselor, which went for about 12 years, 10 times a year for uh, 16 pages, and a lot of detail. And one of the the, the things that you start to find out from an organizational effectiveness standpoint is we don't do a lot of helping people understand what they can do to be more effective, which is kind of a couple things I'd like to talk about today. But one of them is that's kind of driven me is why do people that run organizations very or departments very good people, wonderful people, but they end up doing things that effectively de-energize their organizations and they don't know it. So how do you start to understand what that is and what you can do about it? And they, okay, what that did is uh, ultimately uh, put me in a situation where I became involved with this organization you talked about, TEC, T-E-C, stands for the Executive Committee. It's now known as Vistage. 
And it's a national and international organization that actually got created in Milwaukee. But what we do is we organize groups of members who are willing to pay for it into groups of 12 to 14, meeting nine to 12 times a year on how to be more effective in running your organization. So it actually attracts people who are already understanding that, hey, maybe everything I know and do isn't completely effective. And what can I learn both from speakers and from my peers? And I did that for 30 years until a couple of years ago. And then, as you pointed out, I'm now involved with something called Envision Greater Green Bay, which is an extension of a organization called the Bay Area Community Council uh, that, that was an offshoot of the chamber that basically was trying to, to uh, uh, look at trends that are going to impact our marketplace, meaning the community uh, in, in the future, the bigger trends that, that others are not paying attention to, to elevate visibility about them so that people who could take advantage of them or avoid the negatives. And if you go back 25 years, we had in, in Brown County some extraordinary organizations who were growing by thousands of people and uh, impacting their industries from little tiny Green Bay. Very innovative. And we've written stories about those because of technology and because generally we're, we got this great work ethic that, that kind of hides the fact that we're not as innovative as we should. Um, and Vision basically reoriented itself and said, we're going to take a concept called foresight analysis or strategic foresight and try to encourage organizations to, to start using those techniques to actually look beyond three years at trends that are coming at them. So we're trying to do that on behalf of the community and uh, getting organizations to do that on their own behalf so they'll be more innovative. That's kind of the process I've been going through. <laughs> well, and most recently, Ann and I both get a chance. We're happy to to read your blog that you send out as you as you find things you want to talk about. And the most recent one has talked about where have all the workers gone? Yeah. And that's such a critical topic for so many businesses today. So maybe we move into that and learn more from you. Okay. And, and then what do you what do you do about it? I mean, there's a fellow named Chris Charnick, C Z A R N I K, lives in Appleton. He's an inter, he's a national speaker. It's what he does most of his time now. Uh he's written a book called uh The War for Talent, and uh which gives some of these insights, but the basic premise that we're all involving it. Where are the workers? I mean, we're short. We can't find them in agriculture and hospitality and manufacturing. And as he points out, if you actually look, excuse me, and if you go back, there's people who had predicted this. I mean, when you look at birth rates, when you look at when uh, people uh, in their lifestyles spend money, the peak is about age 48, 49, 50, 51, before they, the kids are now, I mean, they spend a lot of money on education and housing and, and kids and that sort of thing. And then once they're gone, you start to tail off, but you're still spending money on services and that sort of thing. Anyway, if you trace that spending mechanism through the number of people being born, you can start to see when the economy is going to be strong and when it's going to be weak. And we're in that period of weakness driven by the age demographics at the same time. When you look at the generations the, you know, you start with ba with uh, the, the, the baby boomers who are now still, uh, some are still working, but still retiring at a fairly quick age. They're, they're right now, the earliest, the latest of them are, are, are approaching 60 years old. And then you get Generation X. Uh, those are people in their 40s and 50s right now. So they're effectively in their prime working times. But there's a lot fewer of them than there were baby boomers. So as the baby boomers 
as leaders and workers are fading out, you've got a lesser group doing most of the work. That's being followed by uh, millennials who are now in uh, their late 20s and, 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 and uh, 30s. So they're you know, emerging as a prime. And they're a little bit larger than millennials, but not as big as baby boomers. Uh, so you can see this decline of total number of people available to work. And then you finally get to the Generation Zs, which are the people in their 20s right now. I mean, teens and 20s, so just entering the workforce. And that's even smaller yet. So it continues a trend. So on one hand, we're not producing enough people. And that's been known for some time. I mean, I've, I've talked to um, some of my member organizations who said, hey, you know, I've got all these 55-year-olds who are going to be retiring shortly, and I don't really have people well-developed behind them. Okay, so you can acknowledge that, but what do you do about it? Because uh, you still, I mean, you, there's certain things we're going to talk about that you can do. A lot of the companies, they knew that this is coming, but they thought and they were more focused on the short-term solution and, and short-term earnings rather yeah. than right. looking at right. long-term no. solutions. Right. And it takes time. And I yeah. know that you've talked about the culture. And you know, yeah. right now, everyone is trying to gobble the next worker to work for them. Mm -hmm. And the culture is extremely important. I know that you have done some, web, not only webinars, but you know, some presentations for us about culture. So, yeah. They, I mean, the challenge is that if you're comfortable, you don't want to do any, you don't want to expend the dollars to think ahead. And so the, the degree to which we actually do professional development for our employees, meaning skill development as well as effectiveness development, how do you operate within an organization to be effective? We don't do it. We don't do it anywhere is near enough. And and so we weren't, you know, thinking ahead or planning ahead, trying to uh, what I call organ creating organization sur surplus by hiring people before you need them. We didn't do all that. So anyway, and then as I'm talking about, we don't even have the, the people. Then you run into the pandemic where you've got some people who, who decided that, hey, I don't even want to come back into the workforce. They may be forced to a little bit. The, there's another trend out there too, that the baby boomers were really successful and, and built wealth that some of their kids now have. So the kids don't have to work as much. Mm -hmm. So they aren't coming back to the workforce. The, the, what, what Chris Charnick ultimately says in his presentations is, is what we the capability we had for 40 years where we could select the people in, in the, uh, the unemployment line who or the coming out of colleges that we wanted to work for them no longer exists. There's, they're not applying. We don't have a, a universe of people to select from. Uh, we're going to have to basically uh, be so good, and I'm getting to your culture thing, Anna, and how we present ourselves and how we build our organizations in ways that will encourage and, and excite people about wanting to work for us because they're already employed and something's happening at their place of employment that isn't working well for them. So they're willing to look for another alternative and uh, we want to be their alternative. So what are the things you put in place to make that happen? So that becomes issues. Is this in part touching on, and I'm cautious of getting into concepts that some of our readers maybe have less comfort with because they don't understand it. We we often talk in business about the value proposition and what we mean is the value we deliver to someone in terms of, of a tool we give them to use uh, or a problem we help them solve. But are we touching here on what we call the employer 
value? What what value does the employer deliver to the employee to get them to say that's a, this is a place I want to work. This is a place yeah, I want to get time. So that becomes that's a lead, perfect lead. And Chris Charnick goes through it in his book on the, the winning the war for talent a lot. But it's obviously it's not due. It's also spread around. Is what is the employee looking for when he or she is going to select that next job? And, and a lot of what we reason we do, you know, we're motivated to leave is because there's something deficient in the place that we are right now. Um, one of the thing, points he will make, and especially with younger people, is the ability to learn. Where they, are, the, you know, as I mentioned before, uh, we did not put in professional development types of capabilities. Therefore, the organization I'm working for isn't doing much to, to intrigue me. Uh, to put me into new situations where I'm learning and creating new, you know, and developing new skills and new understandings and that kind of thing. It's not stimulating. I'm doing the, the job. Okay. I, I'd like to be in an organization that does do that for me. And so make sure as you, no matter what size you are, if you want people, make sure you're doing something to make it continually interesting and new for them. And yes, you, there's all different a cascade of development techniques you can use, but figure out the ones that you can put in place and, and, and create them. So that one of the things when you promote yourself is uh, we are going, to, you know, one of the terms that I like is I cannot guarantee you employment, but I can guarantee you employability, meaning I will develop you so that if my business goes away, you are completely capable of moving to another one fairly quickly and do. So this training, this development. Um, so number one, make sure that's in there. Okay. Now, how do you, when you're going to write a job ad, because now you need people, how do you create that job ad? And we all know the, the normal ones, if you go on an Indeed or Monster or something, I mean, they're really dry. They say, they, they don't really sell the company. They're telling you the job here. Go ahead and apply if you'd like to. Okay. I don't really like to because I'm not intrigued by what you you said make me excited about joining your organization. And as people point out, skill the having the skills is the first pass. You know, what is it? I mean, people people are hiring to fill a position that has certain skill needs. Okay, do you have those or do you not have those? If you don't have them, okay, you're not going to be qualified. So that's the first pass. But the next thing is, will you get what you want out of the, the, the spending eight to 10 hours a day, five days a week in that organization? How do you find that out? So that so what you do is, is you go to your current employees and say, why are you working here? Why are you staying here? Where did you work before? And why did you leave? What was going on there that made you want to leave? And then what intrigued you about coming to us? Find out what that is. Because when you write the job ad, that's the top line. Because make an assumption, at least try it out anyway, that what got your current employees here is what's going to get the next employees here. And make sure that you're raising that question in the top line of your ad and the first paragraph of your ad. Then the next paragraphs are going to basically say, here's how we do it. Here's how we make sure that we take care of your needs around that issue. And then the final one is, you know, if you do this, here's how you're going to feel. So get into the emotions of, you know, when, when you work here, here's, I mean, you're going to be excited about going home. You're going to be excited about telling other people you're, you're going to feel good. You're going to feel motivated. You're going to, you know, that kind of thing. So that's kind of the progression that people talk about in an ad. To keep talking a second, there's a fellow in Green Bay named Lanny Vigat runs a 
company called Carnivore, been growing very quickly. And he went through a lot of iterations trying to figure out exactly what is successful in the hiring process for him. Uh, but he also looked at speakers that he saw through the Tech Vistage organization. And what they say is that that you've got to create excitement. So you're really going to talk, go to Anna's thing on culture. You're going to talk about your culture in, in an ad. And so he does. Uh, and he, he says, I mean, can you envision you being a part of an organization that does this? And that's his first, that's a number of questions that he has in his first paragraph that relate right back to that top headline. And, and they're not about skills. They're about contribution. Uh, they're about uh, the fun things that you would want to do, uh, the fact that you're going to be enabled to do other, because you work in here, you're going to be able to do these other things in your life that you'd like to do. Get those into it. I mean, the things that, that appeal to the spirit and that are highly unusual and set you apart. We had a protege who uh, yeah. interviewed his small business, interviewed his labor uh, pool, which was really, I, th I think, only eight or 10 what he didn't expect to hear and he asked the question why are you here what are you why are you staying here and the answer was because you're a small business and i've got skills and where i've come from i could have gone back to in some form but i like being part of something small where i can see the impact i'm having i can see that i'm an integral part of what you're doing and you, yeah. you value what i bring and he's now the, the owner's now growing the company and and so we've talked about his challenges to keep recreating those small business pieces, even as he grows the company. You, you you can't lose that flavor of being a small business because then your your labor force starts to look elsewhere because you're yeah. getting big, you're getting, you're, you're stepping away from some of the values of the culture that, that were there in the beginning. Yeah, Is that something you, you've seen as well? Yeah, I mean, what do you get with a smaller business, smaller, medium size is you have, you can have the relationship with decision makers. So you have input into what's going to impact you, what's going to impact the company. Um, you're a force for progress and, and, a, and an acknowledged one. And you can do that in smaller organizations. The one things I talk about is joining, come out of college and join a larger organization. You're going to get great training because they really do have the dollars imposed to, for, for training programs and development. I mean, you're going to have some uh, another one or two promotions that's going to give you greater perspective and that kind of thing. But eventually you're going to watch the politics of an organization and the fact that it isn't all about how good you are. It's how, what you say and how cool you are and, and stuff that doesn't, mm -hmm. and, and performance doesn't get recognized. And it, it doesn't get recognized as much. And at that point, you're going to say, hey, I got to move to a, the smaller organization where I'm going to be able to do that. Because smaller organizations do exactly the same thing, do exactly the same thinking that larger organizations do. And as I mentioned earlier, that smaller organization better be now doing the development things that will make you better, just as a larger organization kind of peters out in doing. One of your recommendations, Phil, also in the article you just wrote about where have all the workers gone was uh, that the organizations should put uh, on their PNL or the income statement a cost of recruiting. It's very important because if they don't calculate that, they yeah. will revert to their old bad habits. Right. If it's on if it's on the PNL, if it's that line item and there's dollars associated with it, you pay attention to it. If it's not on there, you know, it can kind of 
know, go away. It, it doesn't get recognized as well. Uh, so do it. I mean, yeah, exactly. I really love the fact that you're bringing really metrics. Yeah. And I think that cost is pretty significant when, when people finally pull it out and, and put it there. You realize that it's, it's, it's that's a significant cost when we're having turnover of employees. Yeah. But development is not an expense. It's, no, it's an, an investment. investment in yep. that person producing more on behalf of the organization. I, I have a friend that's in a large organization, manufacturing, and he has put off, he, they've asked him to to set himself up for promotion to manager, and he's been putting it off. He's an engineer. He can repair all the equipment in the cell. There are five cells in his shift. Uh, they finally pushed him hard enough because they kept losing managers. What I've talked with him about is my concern that his model for managers are the people who went before him, who have now left, and who really weren't very good managers, who really didn't treat people well, who didn't believe in, I need to teach you things. I need to give you opportunities to learn. I need to develop you. So now he's kind of in this netherworld. He's suddenly been promoted, no pay increase, but you got to run now five cells and keep them going, and you got to hit your numbers. And the question is, how do I do this? How does he go back and, and learn these things? And this is a large organization that is set in its way. So I'm probably not going to happen there. I'm just using him as an example. I don't know how long he'll stay before he moves on back to some place where he can learn, as you say, where he can yeah. get uh, develop those employability attributes, skills, whatever we want to refer to them as. But he, he's not prepared to be a manager, and yet now they want that of him. Yeah. I mean, that, that intuitiveness, that sensitivity to people. I mean, I, I'm trying to remember exactly the quote by a fellow named Lee Thayer, who was a major guru that nobody knows about. I mean, he actually created the Johnsonville broad uh, success story uh, in Wisconsin 30 years ago. Um, he lived and he recently died in his 90s. Uh, he's written a lot of very complex, hard to understand books, but his concepts are just really superb. And he said, you know, that I, people don't buy into you. People are not going to care about you until you show that you care about them. Uh, very simple. So, uh, and it's interesting. I've, I've read recently about about Southwest Airlines and, and Herb Keller, who founded it, who said the most important individuals that we need to be worried about are our employees. If we're good to our employees, they'll be good to customers. And yeah. then he retired. He's passed away more recently. And and people are pointing to the fact that they began, they began to count the numbers much more than the people. They began to check the, the cost of things. And they haven't upgraded their software, et cetera. That, those are the reasons we're seeing, apparently, for the debacle that Southwestern has recently gone through. Yeah. as an airline because they aren't they aren't focused on their people as you're saying in in all these ideas this development of people well and the other corollary to that you just mentioned is they they didn't upgrade their system they, they've got a they've got a model that's superb meaning it's point to point as opposed to having to go to a hub and then then to get to where you're going and that makes it difficult to manage which means you need a very sophisticated computer system to know where the people are and that if there's a problem that something's not going to happen someone gets sick or aircrafts isn't going to arrive. How do you, the, what is the changes to make? The computer has to tell you that. And they had developed that system. Yeah. Yeah. That fell, that fell apart on them. I need to offer to people that they're going to have the ability to learn if I hire them in my company, that they, they're going to have been, be in a process of continuous development, that that's something we want them to experience because that builds employability on their part as being simply, as opposed to being simply an employee in the firm. We want to enhance their employability. It helps us. It also reassures them about their their long term security, and it shows you care about them. Yes, 
I love that term about discretionary effort. That 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 if you do those kind of things and show you care about person, about a person, they're they're buying in more into what you're doing, and you get that discretionary effort, i.e., that extra effort, i.e., that extra service that they're going to provide that that makes things effective. I mean, so how do you get the discretionary effort? That's how you do it. Yes, and I, and I owe you my my reference on that. I apologize. <laughs> I haven't sent it to you. The Mentab line that I talked to you once, the the minimum effort necessary to avoid being fired. That yeah. it's it's the effort above that, the discretionary effort that we really want people to give willingly, yeah. not to to right. demand it of them, but to, but have them want to deliver. Right. Uh, do you have other thoughts to offer on on how we find our way through this challenge of of? And my sense is not only have we got a smaller pool of people available as these generations have, have gotten smaller in size, but is our rate of, of uh, participation in the labor force also declined to some degree? You mentioned that for some of them, they've inherited wealth from parents and they don't have to work quite as hard. Is that an element here that we're looking at in terms of the, the struggle to find the, the talent that we need? Yeah, I mean, sure, but that's actually kind of a more minor one. I mean, the, the bigger challenge is just the fact that the demographics... Okay. <laughs> Are, are, are not there. I mean, what are the things? Number one, if you're trying to get people, number one is you have to stand out. You can't do the have the same. I mean, you know, I need a production manager. So your top line says, I need a production manager. Well, there's 18,000 other people who have that same line. So what could you do different? Well, what you do different is finding out the need, which is not a skill need that, that, that the person you're trying to attract here is looking for. So and that becomes a cultural thing, the soft skill thing. The, the, the you know, what are you going to get? Uh, is uh, that that's really fun for you and then compelling when you come to our organization? That's how you stand. The business case for the employees right now, like you said, I mean, talking to your employees as a customers and by extracting that and putting together more of a attractive features to join your organization, the culture. How do you promote that you have a great culture within your organization, the development, focusing on the development and more of a career exporting rather than, you know, just a job position within your uh, company, I think is extremely important. But one of the fun things is, you know, what is culture? Yes. (laughs) People say, well, it's a culture. I put the culture, I embrace the culture. They got a great culture. What is it? And I, you know, for the longest time, um, I wondered, about that and I found there's a fellow named Friedman, I forget his first name, uh, he's out of New Jersey, but uh, he, he's kind of a guru in it. And he, the th- logic that I was trying to start to comprehend, he kind of reinforced and created consulting capability books about it. But anyway, the point is it's behaviors. So on Monday morning, when I walk into an organization, either new or whatever, what are the ways that I am supposed to behave that? are what the culture is. So how do you take these concepts of values and, and, and find out what are the actual behaviors that emulate uh, those values? So that set of behaviors becomes kind of our culture. Now you've got ones that you care about from the, for the organization. And I'm gonna say there's 15 or 20 of them. That it's how we operate. And if you don't, if this isn't built into how you operate, you're not gonna be successful here. And then each department will have additional ones that relate pretty much to how they to do their job, how they relate with the department's customer uh, and that sort of thing. 
anyway, uh, if you can get down to the actual behaviors that, 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 so the person knows this is what I do that will emulate the culture that uh, this organization wants. And therefore you can, you can say that, hey, that person isn't doing it or they did something contrary to it so they don't fit the culture or they need to be told that, hey, you, you handled a customer wrong or you handled this situation wrong. That's not how we do it. I think that's really important that this emphasis on and, and looking for and helping people understand the behaviors that define what our culture is. And you, when you mentioned Johnsonville Sausage earlier in my teaching days, I used an article by Ralph uh, Sayer from Harvard Business Review that, that fascinated me in terms of how he brought his employees into the decision-making process in ways nobody would have ever have imagined at that time. But more recently, when in our in the midst of our total quality management focus for a period of time, there was a woman who was in HR at Johnsonville Sausage who talked to the audience. She said one of her favorite days was a Friday when on the employee uh, board was a little sign that said, thank God it's Friday. And everybody kind of chuckled a bit. And then she said, wow. But what was important was on Monday, there was another sign in the same handwriting that said, thank God it's Monday meaning I'm back because I want to be here. This is what I love doing. I'm ready for my weekend, but I want to be back here. That yep. That's a behavior in part, or it's a, implying a behavior that I find I, f I find fulfillment in what I'm doing here. And, and that's what draws me here. And there's that's, a major leader that cr created that. Yes, yep. That discretionary yep. effort that was implied by that, yep. Yep. Well, yeah, Ralph's theory was a product of Lee there. yeah. We we truly appreciate you giving us time, Phil, and and I don't want to take too much of your time, even though we could happily go on for probably two hours, and we probably need to have you back if we might uh, impose on you for some further discussion, because I think this is very, very important. And I I was reassured to hear you say, because I, I feel this problem has been building for years. I, I look back 50 years at, at people who could tell us that we were we were building a problem here when we didn't understand what the employee was looking for. We thought they just wanted income. They just want, want money and uh, et cetera. Those, those little fringe benefits we toss at them. That's when right. in fact, it's much more fundamental than that. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah the top five things that money's not one of them. Yep. Yeah. Yep. If, I mean, the next corollary to it, we alluded to it is the whole innovation thing about what, I mean, what are we not doing and how do you encourage innovation? What have companies done in the past? Because it's all different. I mean, there's no specific model for getting people to be innovative. But what people have done in the past, what companies in Northeast Wisconsin have done in the past is a very interesting session talking about that. Would you be willing to come back and talk about that with us at some point? I, I'd love to because that's my current. I, I would love that as well. That's another that's, to me. That's what innovation is trying to do, encourage. Okay. Know the trends, figure out a way to take advantage of them before he, others. Yeah. He agreed with it. He promised yes, us. Yes, All right, yes. We've got it. We'll hold you. <laughs> yes. We'll invite yeah. him back. Great. And I'd enjoy it. Thank you very, very much for this. Well, thank you. Thank uh, you. And, and our listeners, I know, will thank you, too, for, for what they're learning here about a, a very tough market in which to find talent. And uh, you've given them good advice. And I think quite distinct from what they probably have been thinking about or learned from others. And that's what's important here. You, you really have to rethink how you approach that market. And a good way is, is uh, get 
Chris Charnick's book. It's not necessarily a new book, but it's right on target right now. And he's 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 one of us. He's he's uh, in Appleton. Uh, C Z A R N I K, and it's called Winning the War for Talent. I, so, I will put that in the notes for the podcast so they can click and and order it. And I've I've uh, I'm aware of Chris. Served on a board with him. Uh, I think that book is great. He also had one he wrote for the employees who were looking for work and how to how to approach. Uh, and and identify what they were looking for. But this the, the, that War for Talent is a very good book, well worth reading. Yes. Thank you, Phil, very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. 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 You've been listening to the Small Business Survival Conversation Podcast. Make sure to like, rate, and review the show. And don't forget to join us next week for another episode. In the meantime, hook up with us on our Facebook group at Small Business Survival Tools and Tips. Till next time, thank you for listening.